Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the final chapter in my series review of The Fly. From the 1958 original starring Vincent Price through Cronenberg's masterful reimagining, and finally, to the 1989 sequel The Fly 2, buzzing through a majority of these films for the first time has been a lesson in creative risk-taking and revitalizing a stagnant property. For the period of when The Fly films were released, it was fascinating to not only see directors take such risks, such as removing the fly monster completely from one particular entry, Curse of the Fly, but also seeing how a new set of creative eyes could enhance and modernize the mad scientist classic for an 80s audience. And without further ado, it's time to review the final film in the Fly series. So far, Fly 2. Directed by Chris Wallace, who notably won an Academy Award for his special effects work on Cronenberg's remake of The Fly, he would be flanked by, at the time, up-and-coming screenwriters Mick Garris and Frank Darabont, who would go on to become two exceptionally well-known voices within the horror realm. Now, it would be unrealistic to expect the follow-up just three short years after David Cronenberg's remake to possibly match the film's body horror madness or its tragic love story. And with this in mind, we enter what is a sequel that is more watchable than it really has any right to be, but pales pretty starkly in comparison to its predecessor. The film opens with Veronica from the previous film giving birth under unusual circumstances. Right off the bat, the audience will notice Gina Davis has been replaced by a stand-in, as Davis wasn't interested in returning for the sequel given the life expectancy of her character. Veronica subsequently dies giving birth to a horrifically grotesque cocoon, which confirms her greatest fear that Seth Brundle had impregnated her with a fly hybrid baby. While Veronica dies from birth complications, to everyone's surprise, a perfectly healthy boy emerges from the grotesquely fleshy cocoon. Though, given the tragic nature of the series, this sigh of relief is sure to be short-lived. The fly follows Seth Brundle's son Martin, played by Eric Stoltz who as a result of inheriting his father's mutated genes, suffers from a condition now known as Brundle's Accelerated Growth Syndrome. Meaning, he grows at an accelerated rate, the morbid flip side of this being he will inevitably die much sooner. With this condition comes his father's master intellect and as a result, the boy genius struggles with living in a world that he's outgrowing and outthinking at an hourly rate. Given the potential of Martin's superior intellect and mutagenic genes, Mr. Bartok, played by Lee Richardson, adopts him as a baby and has him confined within the Bartok Industries for testing. But as Martin's intellect continues to grow, he begins exploring the Bartok facility and uncovering its many secrets. Much like in 1959's Return of the Fly, sins of the fathers are visited upon the children is very much the ethos behind the film. Martin discovers Bartok has his father's teleportation devices and convinces him to help them master it. It's a simple framework for a sequel, and while I don't think we needed a sequel to Cronenberg's film, this is the most logical course, if uninspired angle this creative team could undertake. Though early on, it's apparent that The Fly 2 has a considerable amount working against this narrative. For starters, the ill-advised decision was made to attempt to replicate Seth Brundle and Veronica's relationship as Martin Brundle meets the lovely lab assistant Beth Logan, played by Daphne Zuniga, and the two begin a romantic relationship with one another. As you might have imagined, The Fly 2 is unable to catch the lightning in the bottle that was Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis's dynamite chemistry in the previous film. 
The Fly 2's underwhelming romance is what the entire film is unfortunately propped up on. Alongside the nefarious intentions of Bartok Industries, casting the illusion that Martin is their friend rather than the test subject they view him as. This tension between Martin and Bartok comes to a boil when Martin begins to show increasing signs of mutation, his father's genes eventually catching up to him. Without having to venture through the telepods, Martin begins to change, becoming increasingly fly-like, just like dear old dad. This is where the film begins to shift from rather uninspired whiz-kid melodrama to a fantastic application of practical effects that give the film some enjoyable semblance of a reason for existing in the first place. Apparently, the MPAA wanted to give the film an X rating initially due to one particular graphic scene involving a human head in an elevator. But Chris Wallace appealed the decision and the MPAA ended up giving him an R rating without having to make further edits. A very promising start for a film that manages to capitalize on impressive practical effects in all their gory and goopy glory. Things begin brutally enough with a boy and his dog. Young Martin befriends a golden retriever lab dog who he visits at night and feeds his table scraps to. Though when the dog goes missing, Martin tracks the dog to the telepod room where the golden retriever stares aimlessly as the Bartok staff places the canine inside a teleporter and he proceeds to mutate into a jumbled mess of meat and fur. Not only a fantastic use of practical puppetry, but the emotional weight of an imprisoned boy losing his only friend is quite effective. And this is only the beginning. Martin himself begins to mutate. A needle mark on his arm begins to leak fluid and a stretchy substance emerges from it. This transitions into him displaying super strength not unlike his father did, but also his face begins to become dehydrated and decrepit looking. Eventually, his human body begins breaking down. His legs cease to function as they should. His vision is clouded, only rectified once Martin nonchalantly rips his own eyeball out, revealing a new, more insect eye. His mentality begins to change as well, as he stays up late at night staring into a nearby bug zapper muttering, compelling, to himself as a fly soars into the zapper. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leaving a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, which drives the show's success. And now, without further ado, let's get back to today's horrifying episode. He also remarks to Beth that he isn't dying, but in fact, he's healing. Martin's condition worsens to the degree that he reverts back to a cocoon that must be brought to Bartok Industries to be dissected and studied, but what is growing inside will ultimately be Bartok's undoing. This is where the film starkly changes course from the previous film, which certainly featured a creature, but I would never classify it as a creature feature. Whereas The Fly 2 explodes into a full-on creature feature as Martin, now a fully formed towering fly monster, enacts revenge against Bartok scientists and security guards who made his life a living hell. From his sticky and ooze dripping hatching from the cocoon to vomiting acid on a security guard's face, who then claws at his bubbling face and accidentally rips it clean off, along with his jaw, the film becomes brutal as all hell. There is also that elevator kill that I mentioned previously, in which an elevator falls into a security guard's head that's so graphic and wet that it made me squirm in my seat. As for the Super Brundlefly mutation, he's essentially the XL version of Papa Brundle that towers over others. This allows Chris Wallace's practical effects team to essentially make Brundlefly more of an overwhelming force rather than the calculated fly of the previous film. It's an odd stylistic choice, but it definitely works in giving the fly too some semblance of its own identity, as what it attempts to replicate from the other films in the series, it obviously largely fails to do. 
Surprisingly enough, the film actually ends in the most satisfying of ways, with a final lingering shot that ensures the man who wronged Martin is left to suffer facing the consequences of his actions. Given just how fantastic 1986's The Fly is, I had bottom-of-the-barrel expectations for The Fly too. And in terms of its narrative, it's mostly a meandering retreading of a better film, but it never falls into painstakingly corny or unwatchable territory. Had it not been for its squirm-inducing practical effects and bloody mutilating kills, I'd be far harsher on it, I think. So in that regard, fans of the franchise will surely get something out of this if they go into it keeping their narrative expectations in check, as it does have a handful of bloody memorable moments. And since everybody loves a good list, I figured I would rank the five Fly films in the order that I would recommend them. So coming in at number five, I would say is going to be Return of the Fly. Just not very inspired in terms of following up the original Fly. And they kind of made the monster itself much more ridiculous by giving it these kind of like XL body parts on a man's normal size body. Um, it do just doesn't do a lot with what the original did so well. And uh, the narrative kind of just feels like a retreading. Number four is Curse of the Fly. Most notably, this film does not include the fly monster, but I found that Curse of the Fly takes a lot of creative risks in even broaching the topic of that for a movie. Like, that sounds insane. How could you make a movie about a fly monster or the fly kind of lineage within the family that those original trilogies touch upon without that monster? And yet, it's more about the family and this curse, this idea they can't escape their kind of lineage's obligation to finishing this teleporter technology. And we get to see the disturbing ramifications of that in a way that I found to be incredibly original, not so enjoyable. It's a, it's a very rough movie in a lot of ways, but it did surprise me in that creativity and the originality, given the fact that it's the third movie in the original trilogy. So if you're a fan of the original film, I would highly recommend watching Curse of the Fly instead of Return of the Fly. Number three is going to be The Fly 2. Again, feels mostly like a retreading of The Fly, Cronenberg's The Fly. And I think that it's not a mistake that this feels similar to Return of the Fly in that regards. The difference being The Fly 2 has some stellar practical effects and uh, gore that I think fans of The Fly series, especially of Cronenberg's The Fly, will definitely get more mileage out of that than per se somebody that is coming to the series fresh or they nece don't necessarily have that love of the original. Uh, I doubt that they would get much out of that, but people that are fans of the Fly franchise, I think you'll get a lot more mileage out of The Fly too. Number two is 1958's The Fly, the original. I think that that film approaches the story structure in a really unique way. Again, it has practical effects that are cool for the time period. Obviously those pale in comparison to Cronenberg, so I would never recommend The Fly based on its practical effects. Rather, I would recommend The Fly based upon its approach to storytelling. It backpedals a lot and we're getting, it's more of a mystery movie than a monster movie in a lot of ways, right? And I think that also just the use of technology is really cool to see how they use the special effects, not the practical effects for the monster, but inside of the, the Delambre's lab, all the equipment and things like that, it does a lot to kind of capture that mad scientist ethos that everybody loves. Of course, this is the atomic era, so you've got lots of uh, kind of paranoia about science and all of these different advancements that are being made. And then there's a really cool monster concept tossed into it. Also, it has that mystery angle to it, trying to uncover why this woman stuck her husband's head under the hydraulic press. And I think that it's just an interesting kind of uh, approach to storytelling that not a lot of monster movies, I feel, from this period 
capitalized on nearly as well as the fly. But uh, yeah, the fly, the original fly, 1958, is going to clock in at number two. And of course, number one, Cronenberg's The Fly. I could go on all day about why this is the best fly film for me. All you need to know, other than go listen to the uh, episode where I reviewed it, is this is one of the best uses of practical effects in horror films to date, I would even say. I mean, the thing obviously is this, I feel like the pillars of practical effects in horror are definitely the thing, the fly. And on a revisit of the fly, I was really impressed with just how tragic the romance in that film is. And it really is one of the great tragic romances, I think, not only in horror, I would go so far as to say in film in general, because a lot of times horror movies and if anything that's removed from monsters or blood and gore, people that are not necessarily diehard fans of the genre might look down on, but I feel that the chemistry between Goldblum and Gina Davis and just the way the narrative is structured around that and their involvement with one another, and then we see what happens to Goldblum's character once the monster comes into play, it really is tragic and emotional in a way that I don't think it honestly gets enough credit for, and it's by far one of my favorite Cronenberg films. And yeah, that's gonna uh, that's gonna wrap up my complete series review of The Fly. If you missed any of the five parts, I'd encourage you to go back and check out those episodes. Or if you're looking for more complete series reviews, I've previously completed reviews of Alien, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Scream, and The Final Destination franchise. And while I'm unsure of which series I'll tackle next for a complete series review, you can be sure to check back tomorrow for another Daily Horror Movie Review from Daily Horror Habit. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.